Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to tour Harun al-Rashid's Caliphate and go through the major events that took place within the Ummah during his time in charge. His long reign gives us plenty of material to discuss, so for the sake of clarity we'll have to divide his domain into three major parts and cover each one separately. Through our focus on the military challenges he faced, we will hear how al-Rashid went about defending his legitimacy and discover the limits of his authority. Crucially, we'll learn about tensions flaring at the highest levels of his administration, a consequential and destructive development. Episode 52, Power Struggle Structuring our discussion of Harun al-Rashid has not been an easy task, my dearest listener. Far be it from me to bring this up just to elicit some sympathy, however. I mention it to warn everyone that things are about to get complicated. Our last episode was about the Ummah's foreign wars because that's the only theme which could reasonably be hived off and discussed independently. Everything else is tangled up rather intricately. I'll lay it all out for you before we go any further. As the family of advisors and administrators that he relied upon for most things, the Baramika sit at the heart of the issue. They will feature prominently in our final episode on the Caliph, as they were central to the tale of Harun al-Rashid's succession. Their spectacular fall from grace will require another episode all on its own, as it's one of Arab history's most famous subplots. The Baramika will also come up a lot today, as the Arab commanders will discuss competed with them for the Caliph's favor, and the many loyalists of al-Rashid's brother al-Hadi held grudges against their house. Those themes will kind of emerge on their own as we cover the Caliphate in three chunks, west, center, and east. We'll discuss a couple regions in each of these. In the west, we have Morocco and Ifriqiya. In the center, we'll deal with Syria and Jazeera. And in the east, it will be Daylam and Khurasan. So much took place during al-Rashid's 23-year-long reign that will have to be brief with most events, but as always, I will find time for anything which informs us about the state of Arab power. Before we begin our tour, I need to highlight a couple of al-Rashid's earliest choices as caliphs. When it came to kicking off his reign, he decided to take his father's example. To start on the right foot, he freed a bunch of prisoners and handed out plenty of cash. While his generosity gets a lot of attention, it is more important to focus on the pardoning of his brother's inner circle of advisors. Some narrations accuse these influential men of having recommended al-Rashid's execution when he wouldn't give up his place as next in line for the throne, so pardoning them wasn't some small detail. Al-Rashid correctly recognized that these men never bore him any personal hatred they had just been trying to counsel al-Hadi on how best to achieve his ends. While it was true that the caliph was safe from any ill will, that did not apply to his closest advisor, Yahya al-Barmaki, someone whom these ambitious men had always had it in for. 
Yahya Al-Barmaki's lifetime of service to Harun al-Rashid and his indispensable support during the whole ordeal of Al-Hadi's succession made him far and away the caliph's most trusted official. Al-Rashid placed him at the top of the administrative hierarchy and essentially handed him the reins as soon as he took charge. The caliph's mother, Al-Khayzuran, was still around at first. She and Yahya worked well together, so the arrangement made sense, and the two ran the state until her death three years later in 789. She never appointed any of Al-Hadi's old advisors to power and actively took measures to protect the Baramika. One narration says that after her funeral, the caliph summoned his brother's hajib, Fadl ibn Rabia, one of the Baramika's fiercest detractors, and assigned him some official responsibilities, adding that he'd only kept Fadl away at his mother's behest. Yahya and the other Baramika remained immensely prominent in al-Rashid's administration beyond al-Khayzuran's passing, and the return of al-Fadl ibn Rabia to some form of power didn't destroy them or anything, but this short account sort of captures what's coming. The Baramika were so influential that other prominent men jealously conspired to tarnish their reputation with the caliph. But there I go again, highlighting a major theme of our episode instead of the context it'll emerge from, the Ummah's wars against Karajites and Hashemites, and the commanders who led its armies. Let's begin with the West, far past Egypt, in Ifriqiya and beyond. I'm going to be extraordinarily brief here and only focus on the bits that contribute to our narrative down the line. The main lesson from this region is that the West was too far away to be effectively ruled from Baghdad, one of the conclusions we drew from our discussion of the region during al-Mansur's reign. The West will go from a series of increasingly peripheral provinces of the Caliphate to rival independent dynasties centered in Morocco and Africa. The only name you'll need to remember from this part is Herthamas. Everyone else can be forgotten, though the names of these new dynasties might also be worth retaining. We'll start in Morocco, where one of the survivors of the Hashemite massacre at Wadi al-Fakh arrived three years later in 788. His name was Idris, and as the son of Abdullah al-Kamil, he was a half-brother to Muhammad the Pure Soul and a direct descendant of the Prophets. With this august lineage, Idris managed to bring together a number of the local Berbers, and then greatly boosted his influence by marrying a daughter of the powerful Awraba tribe. In a few short years, he conquered a large part of the Moroccan coast and founded the city of Fez. While this was the region's fourth Muslim state, and the area had been inhabited long before Islam, the dynasty started by Idris is popularly considered the foundation of the modern state of Morocco. There's no consensus on how Idris met his premature end, with some accounts claiming an assassination at the hands of the Arabs and others a Berber betrayal. The first sort usually say al-Rashid sent a guy to infiltrate Idris's project and take the Hashemite down from within. The agent succeeded by gaining his trust and prescribing a poisoned miswak, or toothbrush, as a salve for a toothache Idris had been suffering from. He stipulated that it had to be used at dawn, and made his stealthy escape back to the caliphate when no one was looking. We're told al-Rashid was delighted and rewarded the man with great wealth and a position of influence in Egypt. Versions of this story are common, and it is in no way extreme to think that al-Rashid would have killed his kin, 
but I think accounts laying the blame with the Berbers make at least as much sense. The fledgling dynasty survived the death of its founder because his wife, Kenza, of the Berber Auraba tribe, was pregnant, and two months after her husband was gone, she gave birth to a son. This highlights how the cooperation of a powerful local tribe was not only necessary for Idris's political project, it was in fact sufficient, and he dispensable. A regent named Rashid ran affairs until Idris II was old enough to take the reins, and when he was 12 years old, he was proclaimed imam. I suppose it's noteworthy that he didn't go by caliph, but any reason provided for this choice is speculative. Maybe it was political messaging, a signal that the new dynasty didn't seek further conflict with the caliphate. Maybe it was a doctrinal choice, as the title imam alluded to Shiite or Hashemite persuasions. We shouldn't devote too much energy to puzzling this one out, though. The titles Emir and Sultan are applied to the Idrisid rulers just as often, and these give off classical connotations of sovereignty instead of the religious-sounding imam. As we can tell from the rumored assassination of Idris I, the caliph wasn't exactly thrilled at these developments. The reality, though, was that there wasn't much he could do about it. Just as the Hashemite arrived in Morocco, the caliphate's longtime governor of Ifriqiya passed away, presenting the province with a new problem to deal with. Yazid al-Muhallabi had ruled Ifriqiya from its capital Qairawan for over 15 years, ever since al-Mansur had sent him with 60,000 men to deal with the Ibadi Karajites who had repeatedly wrested the city from the caliphate. Yazid's son succeeded him for a spell, but he was replaced by his uncle before too long, another Muhallabite named Ruh. He seems to have been a good choice, but Ruh was pretty old, and within a couple years he passed away and was replaced by another Muhallabite. That guy lasted around three years, after which Ruh's son convinced al-Rashid to make him governor of Ifriqiya instead. He turned out to be nothing like his father, and after mistreating the locals, they rebelled and killed him in Khairawan, plunging the province into chaos once again. I'm sure you've noticed how all of Ifriqiya's last few governors were Muhallabites. The clan did for the Abbasids what the Fihris had done for the Umayyads. They were sort of a stand-in for the caliphate's rulers, who recognized that the distant Ifriqiya needed a family to establish itself locally in order to forge ties with the powerful local tribes and react quickly to any political or military disturbances. But al-Rashid now had to reclaim the province, and to this dangerous task he appointed the skilled commander Harthama bin Ayan, one of the leaders of the Abna and a key supporter of the previous caliph al-Hadi. Harthama had just pacified Egypt the year before, and to make a long story short, he succeeded in Ifriqiya as well. After reconquering the fortified, double-walled city of Khairawan, he handed it to al-Rashid's latest pick for governor. That guy didn't do very well, and anarchy returned when his deputy in charge of the Tunisian coast mutinied a couple times and then retook the capital. Luckily, there was a talented military leader nearby named Ibrahim ibn Aghlab, a son of one of the short-lived governors of Ifriqiya from back in al-Mansur's days. Ibrahim had worked closely with Harthama during his campaign, and after successfully retaking the entire province in the year 800, the caliph made him its latest governor. For the next dozen years, Ibrahim bin Aghlab ruled Ifriqiya in the name of the Abbasids. He kept the Idrisid dynasty at bay, and eventually passed power to his children, 
thus establishing the Aghlabid dynasty. It would last for a hundred years. Starting in Tunis, it will expand into the coast of Algeria, then parts of Libya, and eventually extend its control to all of Sicily, Malta, Sardinia, Corsica, and even the southern parts of the Italian peninsula. Though independent in virtually every way, the Aghlabid dynasty never stopped paying tribute to Abbasids, nor mentioning the caliph in Friday prayers. Let's move on to our next pair of provinces, Syria and Mesopotamia, in the caliphate's center. While the main lesson from the West, that there's no way to hold on to it, was reinforced by both Morocco and Ifriqiya, here our two picks will lead us to opposing conclusions. In Syria, the Baramika will seem like a favored house, and in Jazeera, they'll come off as ineffectual haters. In Syria, Arab power will appear to be on its last legs, while in Jazeera, we'll be reminded of the warrior spirit the Arabs displayed at the outset of our story. The only lessons we'll learn for certain here is that things were complicated, and that the Baramika were VIPs. We haven't really said much about Syria recently, not since the first Abbasid caliph's uncle went around eradicating Umayyad remnants in the area. This official neglect had a deep impact on a region that for over 90 years had been considered the very heart of the caliphate. The cities had remained largely Christian, and so they weren't too impacted by the dynastic shift. But the many Arab tribes in the desert surrounding these urban areas felt the change strongly. Since there was no longer any room for them at the caliph's banquets or in his armies, they devolved to tribal warfare, sometimes against small towns, but mostly against one another. Syria, in the late 8th century, gives us this stark image of nomadic Arab tribes roughing it in the shadows of a prospering caliphate which wanted nothing to do with them, a forewarning of what the fall of Arab power will look like down the line. We first hear of these tribal problems in the year 790, and the news is mainly about two coalitions killing one another out in the open. This got worse over a couple of years, as the hapless Musa ibn Isa tried and failed to regain control of the situation. Al-Rashid eventually decided to remove his Abbasid kin and send one of the Baramika to deal with it, a son of Yahya's unhelpfully also named Musa. Musa ibn Yahya al-Barmaki succeeded in bringing about some peace between these tribes, probably by buying off their leaders, and the caliph sealed the deal by inviting their elders to the capital. This wasn't the first page of a new chapter, though. The official neglect of the province must have continued, because four years later we hear that the same sort of tribal discontent spread throughout Syria once again. The caliph appointed another one of the Baramika to lead the response, and this time his mission wasn't to win over hearts and minds, but to break wills. Ja'far al-Barmaki did just that. He killed those who would not put down their weapons and disarmed the rest. Stripped of their horses and spears, the hostile tribes quickly returned to peace. So the takeaways from Syria are that Arab tribes outside the state were, at worst, an occasional nuisance, unworthy of any special consideration, and that the Baramika were the caliph's favored aides. And now off to Jazeera to undermine both of these lessons. The trouble all started after a local Karajite in Nisibis named Walid ibn Tarif al-Shaybani 
grew powerful enough to challenge and defeat the fortified city's garrison. Some accounts say he bested another larger army sent to deal with him, and most agree that later in that same year, 794, he and his supporters fled to Armenia and sort of dropped off the grid. The next year, they returned with more men, and his rebellion quickly picked up a lot of momentum. We have a few variations on the story about how Yazid al-Chaybani, the caliphate's champion, defeated the Karajites, but I'm going to relay the one most critical of the Baramika. Al-Rashid's choice of Yazid al-Shaybani as commander of the response in Jazeera was no surprise. Yazid was a respected leader of a powerful tribe local to the region, the same tribe that the Karajite Walid al-Shaybani came from, in case the name didn't give it away. Yazid was also one of the Ummah's best military minds, and unlike other commanders of the state, he could rely on his tribesmen in battle as they made up a significant chunk of his forces, giving his army a unique and powerful fellowship that went beyond camaraderie. As one of the few remaining Arab tribal chiefs fighting for the caliphate, he was among the last of a dying breed. Yazid al-Shaybani had also been a loyal subject of Harun al-Rashid's brother, al-Hadi, and had supported him in his bid to remove Harun from the succession. The caliph had forgiven all that, but the animosity between al-Shaybani and the Baramika remained. They hated how al-Rashid needed an adversary of theirs during this crisis. At first, they criticized the idea of putting Yazid in charge, repeatedly insisting to the caliph that al-Shaybani was undependable and unfit for command. This all proved to be untrue, as Yazid al-Shaybani did well at driving the Karajites back into one spot and blocking them there. After his early success, the Baramika changed their tune. They now faulted him for not having already ended the whole rebellion. They insisted to the caliph that something was amiss, that this was too easy a task for Yazid to be taking this long. They not so subtly suggested that Yazid was secretly in league with the Karajite Shaybani. After all, the two shared a tribe, and we all know how tribal people always stick together. The Baramika drilled these doubts into al-Rashid's head, and the caliph eventually wrote an angry letter to his commander on the front, telling him to either finish the war up immediately or return to the capital to face justice. Yazid al-Shaybani was understandably shocked when he read al-Rashid's missive, but being the loyal soldier he was, he prepared to carry out the caliph's orders. He amassed his troops and made straight for the Karajite host. Casualties were heavy on both sides, and Yazid felt responsible for all the lives lost during his headlong rush to battle. He personally called out Walid to come face him in one-on-one combat so that the two could settle the matter like men, without spilling the blood of others. One of the things that had made the Karajite leader so fearsome and earned him his large following was his skill in battle, so this was an exceedingly brave challenge, one that Walid accepted without hesitation. Yazid was no slouch himself, and we can find descriptions of him as a fierce warrior in our sources, even before this epic showdown between the two Shaybanis. We're told it took literal hours, and that several swords were worn down or broken as the two men fought one another while their respective armies surrounded them and cheered them on. By the end of it, when they were almost too exhausted to move, Yazid managed to knock down and kill his opponent. Robbed of their fearless leader, 
the Karajites dispersed, and peace returned to Jazeera and the north, until the Khazar invasion the next year, that is. We know this victory meant a lot to al-Rashid, not because he rewarded Yazid greatly, something the generous caliph did often, but because upon hearing the news of his triumph, he immediately set out on a Umrah, or off-season Hajj, to thank God for his protection. He was open-handed with those he met along the way, and upon completing the lesser pilgrimage, he just hung out in Medina until the real one, which he then also led. The Baramika remained powerful at court, but after this incident, there was a marked decline in their authority. They went from being in total control of most branches of government to just being the strongest faction in the state. For example, the caliph removed Fadl ibn Yahya al-Barmaki from his governorship of Khurasan, a supremely important post we'll discuss in a minute. Even more critically, al-Rashid replaced his hajib Muhammad al-Barmaki, brother of Yahya al-Barmaki, with al-Hadi's old hajib al-Fadl ibn Rabi'a, Baramika antagonist extraordinaire. From this influential position, Al-Fadl ibn Rabi'a managed to do some serious damage to their standing with the caliph over the course of several years, but we'll discuss the downfall of the Baramika in detail next time. Now on to our final two provinces, Daylam and Khurasan, in the east of the caliphate. The Baramika will feature pretty heavily in this pair as well, but instead of focusing on their fortunes, we'll try to infer as much as we can about the people of the East and their attitudes towards the state. A Hashemite uprising may have broken out in Dailam, in the mountains to the southeast of the Caspian Sea, and despite its relatively small scale, it reveals that the locals were open to challenging Abbasid authority. The sentiment in Khurasan varied. Its people were peaceful when they felt that they were being treated well, and raged implacably when they didn't displaying a similar readiness to oppose the caliphate. But Khurasan is a long story. Let's start with Daylam. A few years into al-Rashid's reign, perhaps in the late 780s or early 90s, another half-brother of Muhammad the Pure Soul arrived there. Daylam was one of the most recent additions to the caliphate's long list of tributaries, so it was still a frontier in many ways. Taking full advantage of the region's mountainous terrain, its warlike natives had resisted the Arabs for much longer than others in more accessible lands. And it wasn't until after the fall of Tabaristan that the Daylamites finally treated with the Abbasid Caliphate. This all made the region attractive to any persecuted minorities nearby, and a logical destination for the Hashemite Yahya ibn Abdullah al-Hashimi and his supporters. Despite their enduring anti-Arab attitudes, many locals became zealous proponents of Yahya's, and Islam was increasingly adopted in Daylam as a result of his arrival. It is unclear whether these new partisans actually mobilized against the caliphate, or if it was their flocking to the Hashemite banner which caused alarm at court, but al-Rashid grew nervous, and he tasked Fadl ibn Yahya al-Barmaki, his moat brother and eldest son of his mentor Wazir, with rooting out this new threat. To accomplish his mission, Fadl was given command of the entire region, with all its riches and its 50,000 soldiers. He marched an army out to the foothills of Daylam, and from his tent in the freezing cold, he sent messengers to Yahya to get him to submit without a fight. This didn't go anywhere, 
so he resorted to bribing the chief of Dalem instead, offering him one million silver dirhams to eject the Hashemite from his lands. The Dalemite was intrigued, but he said that his honor demanded that a promise of safety for Yahya be provided. Fadl wrote to al-Rashid about this idea, and the caliph was all over it. In the presence of prominent witnesses, he signed a pledge that no harm would come to his kin and sent it to Fadl, who forwarded the document and the money to the leader of Daylam. Yahya emerged soon after that, and Fadl escorted him back to Baghdad, where we hear he was treated very graciously for a spell, after which not so much. This is another point where we find a lot of disagreement in our sources. Some accounts insist that al-Rashid was only ever generous, enlightened, and forgiving. They stress how he pardoned folks when he first came to power, and more specifically in regards to the Hashemites, how he allowed them to leave Iraq for their preferred ancestral home of Medina, something they'd been barred from since their last rebellion. Others go even further, practically painting the caliph and his ancestors as fervent supporters of the Prophet's descendants, who would have passed power onto them, but couldn't because the Ummah loved the Abbasids too deeply to ever let them go. There is no way to reconcile these attitudes to all the material we find on how the Hashemites fared in al-Rashid's dungeons. Yahya was promised safety, but it seems that before too long, al-Rashid had him imprisoned. We don't really find many accounts that dare to paint al-Rashid in a harsh negative light, but it is clear that he viewed his Hashemite kin as competitors who deserved no quarter. We'll have more to say about Yahya in our next episode on the Baramika, as he is implicated in their fall, at least in one of the many different versions we have of that tale. So to wrap up Daylam before getting started with Khurasan, the moral of the story there was that Fadl al-Barmaki was a dependable fellow who preferred to deal with problems not by force, but through the judicious deployment of wealth. The caliph was so delighted with the way he had handled Dayla in 792 that the very next year Al-Rashid made Fadl governor of Khurasan. But as is often the case with this essential province, we need to take a closer look to adequately appreciate what was going on. I'll try to simplify the complicated affair, but pay close attention all the same. See, Ever since the Abbasid revolution, the governor of Khurasan had always been a member of the Khurasaniyya. Not exactly a native, but someone of Arab stock who had grown up in the region and so was local to it in that sense. This kept the province peaceful and its people happy until late in al-Mahdi's reign, which is when we start hearing some rumblings of discontent in Khurasan and occasional mentions of insubordination. What had changed was that after settling down in the capital, the Khurasaniyya had become the Abna. They'd grown attached to their new home in Iraq and no longer cared as much for the East. Critically, however, their salaries were still paid for by Khurasan's taxes. And more than that, as its governors, they considered the province their own fiefdom. Corruption went unpunished during al-Mahdi's easygoing reign, and the Abna began to skim increasingly large amounts off the top through extra taxation. As you can imagine, their greed brought about considerable opposition in the province, both from its nobles, who had until then collaborated with the Arabs, and the population more generally. 
This seems to have been the main reason Al-Rashid assigned Fadl al-Barmaki to Khurasan. The province flourished under the care of the adept and empowered administrator. Fadl invested enormous sums locally, digging agricultural canals wherever viable and building many public spaces and mosques. He also expanded the caliphate's borders after the commanders he sent east into Transoxiana subjugated new peoples who had previously resisted Arab incursions into their distant lands. We're told that in little over a year, Fadl commanded the loyalty of 500,000 soldiers and that he sent 20 or 30,000 back west as reinforcements for the African campaigns going on around this time. The half-a-million-man army is clearly an exaggeration, but the men he sent to the caliph were no fiction, nor was Fadl's popularity in Khurasan. All the improvements he made earned him the love and approval of its people, projects he could only afford by spending all Khurasan's tax revenue internally, further enriching the province. While other governors were routinely replaced for not sending enough money back to Baghdad, Fadl's special relationship with the caliph certainly gave him far more leeway, and he used it all to benefit Khurasan's population. Despite how well he did in Khurasan, Fadl only lasted as its governor for a couple years before he was replaced, and Harun al-Rashid appointed Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan as its governor of all people. If you don't recall the name, he was al-Hadi's mentor and right-hand man, so basically Yahya al-Barmaki's counterpart. While Ibn Mahan had been pardoned by the caliph for the role he had played in al-Hadi's administration, it would have been difficult to find someone more implicated in the plot to remove Harun and Yahya from court to make room for the previous caliph's son. But such an abrupt change in policy deserves a little more explanation, don't you think? I mean, why would the caliph replace one of his most successful governors out of the blue like that? Al-Rashid wasn't upset with the Baramika, and there are several accounts describing how the entire royal family camped outside Baghdad to welcome Fadl back upon his return to the capital, an enormous honor. Though the reason for Fadl's dismissal isn't specifically spelled out in our sources, it is a pretty safe guess that it had to do with the Abna'a who constantly complained to the caliph about losing their cherished Khurasan to the Baramika. It was a supremely important source of revenue for them, and all that money being spent in the province used to somehow find its way into their pockets instead. Al-Rashid's choice of Ibn Mahan is revealing because he was one of the most senior leaders of the Abna, having been made chief of the armed forces during Al-Mahdi's days. As Al-Hadi's mentor, he had always found reason to oppose the Baramika, and seeing his rival Yahya's son, Fadl, controlling what he considered to be his own, just added fuel to that fire. When the caliph eventually caved to the Abna, one narration tells us that he did so despite the advice of his mentor, Yahya al-Barmaki. Obviously, Yahya can't be considered an unbiased party in this, but we're told he warned al-Rashid that the Abna would only abuse the province once more, perhaps worse than ever. No surprise, that's exactly what happened. Ibn Mahan immediately faced resistance from those already running things in Khurasan, the taxmen, bureaucrats, and so on, and he asked the caliph for permission to rid himself of those who opposed him by branding them zanadiqa and putting them to death. 
Al-Rashid gave his new governor a free hand, allowing Ibn Mahan to persecute his adversaries within the province's administration and establish firm control over it. Three years later, in 799, we once again hear about discontent in Khurasan. This time it's not rumblings, it's practically wails. We're told so many letters came from Khurasan to the caliph's court complaining about Ibn Mahan's abuse that al-Rashid was finally fed up, and he wrote an angry letter to his governor chastising him. But Ibn Mahan had the perfect response to this. He sent the caliph literal tons of treasure, along with some lame excuses about how everything the caliph accused him of was just slander by Ibn Mahan's enemies, no doubt in reference to the Baramika. We're not told if it was the letter or the riches which convinced al-Rashid of Ibn Mahan's innocence, but I'm pretty sure you can guess. This episode repeated itself twice over, getting progressively worse every time. In 802, we hear of Ibn Mahan asking the caliphate for reinforcements to fight off a Karajite rebellion against his authority, and he even accused one of the Baramika of having instigated it. The caliph actually had Musa ibn Yahya al-Baramaki arrested, but he was released after his father vouched for him. Throughout his years as governor, Ibn Mahan continued to send huge sums back to Baghdad, somewhat reminiscent of the way the Umayyads had treated Khurasan. He couldn't keep up with the riotous province, however, and in 805 al-Rashid lost patience once more, and he personally went to Rai and ordered Ibn Mahan to meet him there for a dressing down. But true to form, the governor showed up with heaps of wealth, and all was quickly forgiven. Ibn Mahan, however, was not as merciful, and he apparently returned to Khurasan on a mission to hunt down and punish anyone who had complained about him to Baghdad. This cycle of abuse couldn't go on forever, though, and the next year, in 806, an especially threatening rebellion broke out in Khurasan one led by Rafi' ibn Layth ibn Nasr ibn Sayyar, grandson of that Nasr ibn Sayyar, another reminder of the enduring popularity of the final Umayyad governor of Khurasan. Ibn Mahan could not defeat this movement, and his son was killed after he'd been sent to face Rafi' in battle. Things got more desperate from there, and Ibn Mahan's pleas for reinforcements from the capital fell on deaf ears as it was the same year the caliph invaded the Byzantines and raised Heraclea. We find many accounts describing how Ad-Rashid finally lost patience with his governor of Khurasan. A good one, which draws on the main themes of corruption and defeat, goes that after Ibn Mahan's son was killed, the servants in one of his opulent estates in Belch began whispering about how much wealth had been hidden there. The rumors quickly spread throughout the city, and when people started showing up to investigate for themselves, they found over 30 million dirhams buried here and there. Narrations that like to portray Harun al-Rashid positively stress how it was this proof of Ibn Mahan's self-enriching corruption which scandalized the caliph. But it's more realistic to think that it was his failure to keep the province in check which ultimately compelled al-Rashid to do something about the situation. When al-Rashid finally did send men east to help hold on to Khurasan the next year in 807, he sent them under the charge of Herthama, champion of the African campaigns and one of his most successful commanders of the Abna. Herthama was meant to do more than reinforce Ibn Mahan. 
he had secret orders to replace the governor and take over both the fighting and the overall administration of the province. There are disagreements over why this secrecy was necessary. Some say it was to catch Ibn Mahan by surprise, not give him a chance to organize against his dismissal. Others, that it was to maintain the morale of the troops, and not so more confusion in the province. When Herthama arrived in Nisapur, he began to take pledges from Ibn Mahan's commanders privately, and when the governor showed up to receive him, Herthama delivered a harshly worded letter from the caliph calling Ibn Mahan a traitorous son of a so-and-so and ordering him back to Baghdad. Herthama succeeded in quelling the opposition rapidly, not through war, but simply by meeting with the local princes and relieving them of the unreasonable burdens Ibn Mahan had placed upon them. We find many accounts describing the stores of treasure Herthama found hidden in Ibn Mahan's many estates, and all of it was expropriated and sent back to Baghdad. To give you an idea, one account says that the caravan carrying this illicit wealth to Iraq required over 1,500 mules to be loaded with riches. Herthama's mending of ties with the local nobility helped him calm things down, as did the many letters he sent trying to convince Rafa and his supporters to lay down their arms, promising them amnesty and all that. Though Rafa's movement did linger on, Herthama's conciliatory approach went a long way towards defanging it and strengthening the caliphate's hold of Khurasan. All this disorder we've covered in Khurasan has plenty of implications for Arab power. Ibn Mahan's failure to rule the province stands in contrast to the ease with which the Umayyads ravaged it. There is a clear decline in terms of military capability on part of the Ummah, and the tribal armies of yesteryear had been more effective at subduing the people of the East. On the other hand, the East itself was only getting better at resisting the caliphate's authority. As Umayyad power declined, the rebellions in Khurasan became more numerous, and the region proved to be the perfect incubator for the Abbasid Da'wah. Its growing record of success in this field must have given its people more confidence in resisting Arab domination, regardless whether it was from an Umayyad Damascus or a Abbasid Baghdad. Another lesson we can draw from Khurasan pertains to the struggle at the top of al-Rashid's administration. It is difficult to imagine a world in which the Baramika and the Abna would have had a less antagonistic relationship. The die was cast back in al-Mahdi's days when he assigned the leader of each as mentor to a different heir. Considering how much influence trusted advisors could wield, these two were always going to compete for the caliph's approval and attention. Our sources portray the Baramika as skilled and dedicated professionals. It is a flattering depiction perhaps a little overdone, though I wouldn't go so far as to call it biased. They were educated, capable, well-spoken, and most importantly, totally loyal to Harun al-Rashid. And there were few tasks the caliph couldn't trust them to accomplish. One of their weaknesses, however, was their unpopularity with the Abna', whose leaders, men like Ibn Mahan, Khuzayma, Harthama, and other commanders of the caliph's armies, had always viewed the Baramika as rivals. That's why no matter how effective the Baramika were, Al-Rashid still needed the Abna' in his corner. But this discussion is already dipping into our next episode. 
Let us zoom back out and conclude this one first. The West was lost under Harun al-Rashid, although the enduring loyalty of the Aghlabid dynasty meant that the caliphate still received revenue from Ifriqiya. The region was already too distant to be effectively ruled from Syria, and Iraq was even further. Al-Mansur had managed to hold on to it, but even that legendary caliph struggled mightily to keep it as part of his realm. North Africa's tribal nature meant that a noble had to personally be there to marry into the various coalitions in order to establish a new political order in the region, plain and simple. Long-term stability required nothing less, and the Abbasids couldn't keep military domination up for much longer anyway. None of this absolves al-Rashid from being the caliph who lost the West, but it is surprising how little his reputation suffered because of this. We come across absolutely no critical narrations in any of our three classical histories. Syria is perhaps the most worrying of our vignettes, because in it we can see a dark future for the Arabs. When they ceased to be useful to the caliphate, it discarded them without so much as a second thought. Their degeneration into tribal warfare is something reported in other provinces with neglected Arabs, like Sindh, which we didn't get to discuss this time. There too, in the absence of official guidance and oversight, tribal coalitions made a bloody mess of things. Arabs were no longer useful to the state by default. Like everybody else, they now had to bring something to the table, or risk being left behind. In Jazeera, al-Shaybani's victory over the menacing Khawarij showed us how al-Rashid still needed the support of his generals to win wars, men who were usually opposed to the Baramika. Yazid al-Shaybani was not a member of the Abna, but his close association with al-Hadi during his short reign aligned him with their hostility to Yahya al-Barmaki and his children. Yazid al-Shaybani passed away in 801, but other leaders in the Abna remained equally indispensable to the caliph, Khuzayma ibn Khazim helped Yazid with the Khazars and later Harthama with Rafa's rebellion in Khurasan. Harthama had single-handedly pacified Egypt, then Afriqiya, then Egypt once again, not to mention his raids against the Byzantines. Perhaps the clearest expression of al-Rashid's need to keep the leadership of the Abna satisfied was his replacement of Fadl al-Barmaki with Ibn Mahan as governor of Khurasan, a fiasco which ultimately weakened the caliphate a great deal. Once again, the caliph escapes censure in the many narrations we find in our sources, who reserve their scorn for the disgraced Ibn Mahan. They even use the opportunity to praise al-Rashid for uncovering and punishing his governor's corruption, such poorly crafted propaganda that it is hard to swallow. Anyway, before we wrap up, I just want to highlight that the three leaders of the Abna, Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan, Khuzayma ibn Khazim, and Harthama ibn Ayan, still have a role to play in our story, so don't forget their names just yet. Despite all the material we covered today, it is still difficult to evaluate how well al-Rashid did when it came to managing his ummah. While I described developments in the West as a strategic loss for the caliphate, it wasn't as though al-Rashid had turned a blind eye to the province. He tried to hold on to it, and one could argue that he did better than could be expected. He also successfully imposed his order in the more central parts of his domain, where he did not allow any rebellions to go unpunished. 
Letting the Abna do whatever they wanted in Khurasan was his biggest error, but it wasn't a dangerous mistake. His state was rich and powerful enough to afford such blunders and remain prosperous. Overall, I think Harun al-Rashid was better than average, but his management of the Ummah wasn't something incredible, outstanding, or imaginative. It was good, most of the time. In any case, we shouldn't judge him just yet. We are still missing something important, the outsized role the Baramika played in Harun al-Rashid's life. Join me next time so we can go through a famous storyline from Arab history together, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.